Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, January 17th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. At the outset, I also want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. Basically, you can listen to audiobooks wherever and whenever you want. And for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook, totally free. You just have to go to this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So go check it out. We'll be right here when you get back. So, Indre, this week we have sort of a special show, special first because you're back. You're uh, with us again. Congratulations. You're a mom. This is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, 2014 is a completely new year for me. Not only is it a new year, but uh, I have an 11-day-old baby upstairs. So it's pretty surreal. <laughs> well, congrats. And we were all thinking about you. And uh, we're just, we're, we're thrilled that we get you back so soon. <laughs> well, I missed the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a second reason this show is special. So I'll let you explain that one. Yeah, so anticipating a bit of a maternity leave, I wanted uh, to have someone else come and guest host an episode. And the first person that came to mind was a woman that I met at the Science Online conference last year. Um, Cynthia Graber and I immediately hit it off. Uh, I don't know why, but partly because our personalities mesh, but also because she's just as passionate about communicating science uh, via different media in terms of um, both on online and as a radio journalist. Uh, and so I thought that she'd be a perfect guest host uh, to take over for me during maternity leave. So she is an award-winning print and radio journalist who covers science and technology, agriculture and food, distant lands, and any other stories that catch her fancy. And her recent story in Matter, called Electric Shock, Could Electricity Be the Key to Unlocking Human Regeneration?, recently won an International Physics Journalism Prize. Congratulations, Cynthia, and welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about who you chose to interview for your guest show. Well, I wanted to speak with Michael Pollan. I am a big fan of his writing. I've read, I think, almost all of his books and uh, probably all of his magazine articles. Um, and actually, 
it was a little bit easier to get him as a guest because I happen to know him. Um, I was one of the first recipients this past year of the UC Berkeley 11th Hour Food and Farming Fellowships, and uh, he oversaw that fellowship. And so I just shot him an email and asked if he minded being interviewed. His uh, most recent book is called Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. And there were a couple of magazine articles he wrote this year that I found particularly fascinating. And I was delighted to hear about your choice because I'm also a fan of his work, Botany of Desire. Um, In particular, the documentary film part of it really changed the way that I view agriculture. So here's a clip from the interview with Michael Pollan. We're cooking less and less and outsourcing our cooking more and more. We're really busy. Uh, We're intimidated by cooking. And we have an industry that's working very hard to persuade us. We don't know how to do it and we can't do it as well as it can. My way to approach it is we should encourage people to do it by showing them how interesting it is. Uh, it really is a, an intellectually and sensually um, exciting way to spend your time. Cynthia, it was an awesome interview. And I just want to point out that you are doing the MIT Night Science Journalism Program, of which I am also an alumnus, proud. And uh, we won't tell anyone, but we have a secret handshake. Then that's what allowed you to be on the show today. And other Knight Fellows can also get on because of their talents, if they know the handshake. <laughs> we'll keep that just between yes. us nights. <laughs> yes, between us nights. And Cynthia, since you're our guest host today, we wanted to let you do the honors in terms of leading our weekly discussion of what's up in science right now. So what's on your mind? So this week, a new physics book came out, and uh, it delves into the nature of reality, and it's incredibly funny and touching. Um, I recently, I went to a book reading. It was for Amanda Gefter's very first book reading for her very first book. It's called Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn. Um, Now, Amanda covers topics I usually find a bit daunting, theoretical physics, what is the universe, that kind of thing. But she's one of the best and funniest writers I know. It's a this book actually is a very personal tale, her journey and her journey with her father. Um, When she was 15, she and her dad were in a Chinese restaurant and he turned to her and he said, how would you define nothing? And that started them on what become a many-year quest to understand, as I said, the nature of reality, something from nothing. She faked her way into meetings with some of the top physicists in the world. She became a journalist. Actually, first she lied and said she was a journalist, and then it actually turned into the truth, pretty much just to explore these questions. She and her dad interviewed people around the country. It's laugh-out-loud funny, and it's touching about their relationship, and uh, she delves into some of the questions that beguile physicists today. And I should say, in high school, Amanda had been doing poorly in math and had refused to take physics, and now she's a well-respected physics reporter. Her dad really turned her on to the intellectual pursuit of these deep questions. Well, so, wow, it sounds like someone else we're going to have to have on the show. And let me note another night fellow. (laughs) That's true. And so what you're saying is that this book may, I mean, you know, a lot of people are just, if they understand modern physics at all, which they mostly don't, they're kind of terrified because it sort of takes away, it keeps, it keeps rolling back how everything works and taking away uh, what some people would see at least as the meaning of things. Um, Are you saying that she's bringing it back in uh, in a different way? Meaningfulness? 
It, it is meaningful. I, what you said about kind of people being intimidated by it, I think that's actually what really turned Amanda onto it. She was very philosophical in high school, and she had all these big questions about nothingness. You know, she was 15 at the time. And she and her dad just started reading all of these books and trying to get at the fundamentals of all these questions. And these deep questions are really what brought her into physics. And so she brings us, the readers, into that. And, you know, beyond that, it's just this lovely tale of the intellectual and emotional tie she has with her dad as they pursue this. He's actually a radiologist, and theoretical physics is kind of his secret intellectual passion. Um, I have to tell you, you know, the audience at the book reading completely ate it up. They laughed out loud, and uh, they asked questions in two veins afterwards. One was about the technical physics stuff, which she answered easily, and the other was about her relationship with her dad and her mom, who's a math teacher and who put up with a lot of very intense, wow. deep, long physics talk at the table. Well, I know when I was 15, I was very concerned about nothingness, too. It was completely consuming me. I'm sure many 15-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. And I just want to say the name again. You know, I really recommend it. I haven't finished it yet. I just bought it. It only was published this week, but I can definitely recommend it. And uh, so do all the reviewers so far. It's called Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to picking it up. And Indra, I guess you also had something that caught your eye uh, this week that you wanted to uh, flag for us. What was that? Yeah, so it actually came up during my pedi- my first pediatrician visit when the pediatrician asked me how I'm doing. And I looked at him like, you know, I haven't slept in a week. You're doing fine, I guess, given how little sleep I've had. And he mentioned that there was this New York Times article by Maria Konnikova that was going viral just about what sleep is for. And so I made the mistake of reading it, which, of course, completely freaked me out since I'm not going to sleep for the next three months. But essentially, what we know of as cognitive neuroscientists is that sleep has always had some kind of function in memory consolidation, right? So if you don't sleep, then your memory tends to go awry. And if you do sleep, you often see enhancements and different sleep stages seem to have different um, effects on different types of memory. But the the data are still relatively controversial. One study will find it one way and then it'll kind of change. So the the sort of really understanding how sleep uh, affects memory is still a little bit up in the air. But A lot of people have thought, well, that can't be the only reason that we've evolved this large need for sleep, because it's very dangerous to sleep, if you can imagine our ancestors taking time away from being vigilant uh, to really just sleep. It seems like there must be some other reason why this would be selected for in evolution. And so um, Konnikova describes some recent research that was published in Science um, by a woman by the name of Dr. Niedergaard at the University of Rochester. And she found that in mice, what happens during the night is that the cerebrospinal fluid, so that is the fluid that bathes the brain, increases in volume only when the mice were asleep. So this really speaks to another fundamental mystery in neuroscience, which is how do the waste products of cellular function in the brain get washed away? Um, We know how that works in the rest of the body. It's the lymphatic system, but we haven't really understood how it happens in the brain. And here she has, with, with one stone, essentially killed two birds, found a potentially new reason for why sleep might have evolved, and that is to clear away all of the byproducts of thinking during the day, um, but also, you know, how that happens, which is that the interstitial space, so the space in between neurons, seems to expand when we're asleep, allowing the cerebral spinal fluid to flow um, more effectively during sleep. So that's really fascinating. It suggests just another reason why sleep is so important. And, and uh, it also means that, well, duh, if you don't sleep enough, you need to worry 
about your health. Uh, what are the implications for people that are either, you know, getting seven hours, uh, sorry, I confess I'm guilty, rather than nine, or people who are, I don't know, using sleeping pills? What, what, what do you, do we know? Well, I mean, the, the jury's still out to, to a certain extent, but we do know that low quality sleep does have consequences, especially as we get older. And here we have a chicken and egg problem, right? So is it that as you get older, you just don't sleep as much, and so therefore you have cognitive problems later on? Or is it that because of some changes in your brain that are preventing you from sleeping, um, you know, you're also having these issues. So for example, one disease that's been very much linked to sleep disturbances is Alzheimer's disease. And the idea is that maybe, you know, the beta amyloid or the other byproducts of the cell that accumulate in patients with Alzheimer's disease don't have a chance to be washed away um, because the patients are not sleeping enough. Now, this is very, very early work. And this is, you know, still, it's still very much in the hypothesis testing stage. Um, But it shows a lot of promise and is really interesting. And if we can sort of enhance that sleep, um, maybe we can make a dent in some of these diseases of late late life. And it's unclear whether um, sort of pharmacologically induced sleep has the same effect. That remains to be answered, that question of whether just because you take a sleeping pill, are you actually able to put your brain into this um, janitorial waste management mode? Hmm. Okay. Well, I think that, you know, solving this mystery and sleep is just this gigantic thing looming in human existence that has to have an explanation. I think that that's, I think this does seem to make a lot of things click. So it's great to learn about. Yeah. Not for me. (laughs) Right. Sorry. Okay. So now with that, let's take a short break and we'll be right back with Cynthia's interview with Michael Pollan. So once again, we want to remind you that today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from on topics ranging from politics to classics. And basically what it lets you do is listen to audiobooks whenever, wherever you want. And for listeners of this podcast... Audible's offering you a free audiobook. All you have to do to get it is go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Now, personally, I am an Audible fan because, nice, they have two of my books right there. You can get my books on Audible, uh, Republican Brain, my most recent book is there. But they also have the many books of our distinguished guest this week, whose interview you're about to hear, Michael Pollan, including his latest, Cooked a natural history of transformation, but they have the others. Basically, they have as much Michael Pollan as you could want in your intellectual diet. So again, go on over to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds to support our show and uh, to get one of these free books. Michael Pollan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Cynthia. So I'm a huge fan of your magazine articles and books, and I have been for a long time. But, you know, I have to admit that when Cooked came out, I thought, okay, you know, I've read a lot of your writing on food, but I absolutely adored it. And probably because I'm mildly obsessed with cooking and eating and the science and history of both. So just to start with, how did you decide to write this book? Well, it was not in the plans. You know, as I saw it, my, my project over the last 10 years has been writing about the food chain. Um, from uh, the point of view of, you know, the soil all the way through to our bodies. And, you know, so I wrote Omnivore's Dilemma, which is really looking at where food comes from, um, how it's produced beginning at the beginning of the food chain. And then I kind of jumped ahead to the far end of the food chain, which is to say what happens 
in our bodies when we ingest this stuff. And what do we know about the links between diet and health? And along the way, and those two areas were things I knew very little about. I mean, I was one of these people, like most Americans now, who really doesn't know where their food comes from or didn't and didn't pay too much attention to it. And like most Americans too, I was really confused about what we really know and don't know about uh, the science of nutrition. So I was taking myself and people into places that were unfamiliar and somewhat exotic. But along the way, I kept getting these hints that there was something happening in the middle of the food chain, which is to say those steps where the stuff coming off of the farm gets transformed, processed, and or cooked into the meals that we ingest. And that that had a very powerful bearing, more than I realized, both on the kind of agriculture we have and on our health. So that the, um, you know, it may, it, it, it was becoming increasingly clear that um, how healthy you ate had more to do with who was doing the cooking. Was it you, was it a human being or a corporation? than it did about any particular nutrients, good or bad, which is, of course, what most of us focus on. And then at the other end of the food chain, I was becoming more and more sensitive to the fact that it was our eating habits uh, and the collapse of cooking that was really driving the industrialization of our agriculture. Because when you let corporations cook for you, they're going to want um, huge quantities of the exact same stuff. Um, feedlot cattle, you know, russet Burbank potatoes. Um, uh, they basically want to support, because of their economies of scale, monocultures. And that it really was McDonald's and Burger King and KFC that were driving what was happening down on the farm, all the things I was observing in Omnivore's Dilemma. So it made me realize I had to pay attention to that middle link of the food chain. The one that seemed least exotic and most familiar uh, turns out to be perhaps most influential. And that's when I decided that we're really not going to get a handle either on our agriculture or our diet if people refuse to cook. Uh, and that that really was the crux of the problem in the whole food chain. So that's when I decided to devote a whole book to the subject. Um, and also because I, I was getting increasingly interested in the process and um, and doing more of it myself and um, coming to realize that it was really, really interesting in ways I hadn't appreciated. Well, and that's what I, you know, I found so interesting in your book. And you say least exotic, but there's so much exotic about the history of it and the science of it and, and what's actually going on. And this is, I want to drill into that a little bit. And so, you know, the first two parts of your book cover fire and water roasting and, and braising. And so how important are these chemical transformations that take place when we roast meat or make a stew? What do these processes, let's say, first do to the flavor? Well, the main thing, I mean, a lot of the cooking we do, we cook for a lot of reasons, uh, but a primary one is that cooked food tastes better, by and large, than uncooked food. Uh, and the kinds of processes that, that uh, happen at the chemical level, when you um, put high heat to food or slow heat and low heat to food, um, transform the flavors and, and basically complicate the flavors. I mean, if you compare the, the compounds present in raw meat to the explosion of new aromatic chemical compounds you get, once you've uh, uh, exposed it to fire, it's, uh, it's dramatic. It's, it's literally thousands of new aromatic compounds are created through two chemical reactions, the Maillard reaction, which is what happens when sugars and amino acids combine under heat. 
and this is the it's everything from um, roast coffee flavors to roast meat flavors, but also bread. The crust of bread is Maillard reaction. It's 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 a uh, it's really a fundamental reaction to cooking. And the other one, which is also very important and shows up in in cooked meat, but other things as well, is caramelization, uh, which is what happens to sugars when they're exposed to high heat. And they too get this range of very um, interesting, evocative, complex flavors um, through you know simply heat and sugars. And um, so, and, and it's and there are places where you really can't tell where you know is it the influence of Maillard or caramelization that's giving you the flavors that you're perceiving. But but by and large, they they make food much more interesting. They also make it more elusive. What do you mean by elusive? Well, I think it's very much uh, goes to who we are as humans that we like to complicate things and we like things to mean more than they seem to or to mean at all. So that when you start cooking food, very simple flavors like sweetness, salt, bitter, sour, suddenly become inflected so that even, uh, you know, coffee might remind you of flowers or mushrooms of earth or... Um, uh, meat could allude to, um, uh, you know, coffee or, or, or alcohol or, you know, all these different things. So suddenly you have foods that are themselves, but also referring to other foods and other memories. And, um, so I think it layers it in the same way you can take bland prose and inflect it through beautiful writing or, or use of metaphor so that it, it, it's much more evocative. So I think cooking does that. It's kind of the, the it's, it's the, the troping or inflecting of food that, that we seem to be kind of um, really passionate about and drawn to. Uh, and also, you know, it, it makes the diet more varied. I mean, if you, you know, if you're eating raw meat every day, it tastes the same every day. But if you you can cook it in a bunch of different ways and, and draw out these completely different experiences. So that's that's a big part of what cooking does. It makes food taste more interesting and generally better. But it also, I imagine there's there's another major part here, and this is kind of the importance of cooking in our evolutionary history, because these processes are also kind of really important in terms of our health and diet, aren't they? Yes, and our ability to digest food and um, uh, and the safety of that food. There's no question that the discovery of cooking was a was a major event in our evolution as a species. Um, we now are obligate cooks, which is to say, we probably couldn't survive on a raw food diet, much as some people try to do. But you'll notice that the people who try to eat a raw food diet, they're very blender dependent um, because you simply don't have time in the day to chew all the food you need to chew to survive, to get that much uh, nutrition. And the reason is that when you cook food, you get more nutrition out of it um, for a couple of reasons. One is the heat, the various cooking processes um, begin the breakdown of, the, um, of, of these long chain carbohydrates and these proteins are reduced to amino acids and you, um, you denature the proteins, it's called, and you gelatinize the starches all of which uh, is, in effect, externalizing some of the work of digestion. And so when you eat cooked food, you're getting bonus calories in that your body doesn't have to work so hard to break them down. Uh, you compare that to a cow, a ruminant, uh, which is, you know, takes day, you know, takes all day, is chewing and consuming food all day, digesting it all day. Um, and it's because it's low quality, uncooked food that needs a lot of internal processing. 
something we would not want to be doing. No. And in fact, uh, by some estimates, Richard Wrangham, who uh, who is an important source in the book on, on a lot of this material on, on the ancient history of cooking, uh, says that other primates our size spend half their waking hours in the simple act of chewing. Yeah, I've heard him talk about that. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, you know, you that's what we would have to do. So... In a sense, cooking also opens up this space for other activities. Um, it's very hard to have culture. Uh, it's very hard to have science. It's very hard to have all the, the things we, we count as important parts of civilization if you're spending half your waking hours chewing. Um, so that's important too. And then the last thing it does, and this was um, uh, important to our evolution also, is it gives you the ability to eat foods that are poisonous raw. A lot of tubers, uh, cassava, potatoes, things like that, you can't eat raw. And so when you learn how to cook them, you, you get access to all those calories that other animals don't have. Uh, and that's a huge boon. The net effect is that the discovery of cooking gave us this, this, um, this jolt of additional energy, calories, that allowed us to uh, expand our brains I'm talking about in, in the scale of evolutionary time, and shrink our guts, and which is to say our digestive apparatus. Because also when you cook, you don't need uh, quite so much intestine. You don't need quite so big a stomach. And there is a trade-off in evolution between creatures that have uh, big brains or really big guts. And we, we moved from being a big-gutted, smaller-brained creature to the opposite. And that expansion in the human brain was probably underwritten by the the discovery of cooking. So you see, it's a it's a it's a critical technology in our evolution, and we are more or less the only cooking animal. Um, I can think of an exception. I mean, since I've read that, I've thought of a couple exceptions. But if you count fermentation as one of the uh, essential processes of cooking, which I do, there are some animals that ferment their food. For example, the squirrel uh, or any animal that buries their food, they're not just hiding it. They're beginning a process of fermentation. So the squirrel is actually fermenting those acorns to make them more digestible, which is something you can do to seeds. And um, so technically the squirrel is cooking too. But um, in terms of using heat uh, to cook, I think we're alone in that. So you mentioned Richard Rangham and, and his research and his, I read his book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Um, and, you know, some people use this argument to say that we have evolved to eat a lot of cooked meat. So how does this fit with many recommendations, yours included, and I should add Richard Rangham's also, but to eat a mostly plant-based diet? Yeah, I mean, we don't know how much meat early man ate. Um, we know he ate meat and meat was an important part of the diet. Um, but it may well be that it was a, a kind of a spasmodic thing that you ate meat when you could get it and it was hard to get and uh, and at various times became even harder to get. So I think people people gorged on meat when they could and then they ate a lot of other things to tide them over. Um, and that's still true. I mean, hunter-gatherers uh, today, when they, you know, they, they tend to kind of gorge, uh, partly because they don't have good methods of preservation. So if you get meat, you better eat it, you know, in a couple of days. But I don't think we really understand that well, the proportions in the in the ancient diet. And most people who tell you with great confidence that this is what our ancestors ate are, you know, I think they're kind of blowing smoke. I think that there are a lot of really open questions. Um, the other point about it is that the meat we eat is not the same meat available to our ancient ancestors. 
we eat meat that's been raised on feedlots on a very uh, rich diet of starches um, and that is shot up with antibiotics and hormones. And um, it's, a, it's a very different food. And, and if you analyze it, you find that it has a very different fat profile, for example. Um, wild meat, when we get it, is, uh, is a very healthy, very nutritious food. And it has very, uh, a very positive uh, or favorable relationship of omega-3s to omega-6s. Which feedlot meat, since it's it, it's raised on a diet of seeds in effect rather than grass or leaves, uh, has an unfavorable relation, uh, a proportion of uh, omega three to omega six. So, uh, eating a lot of modern meat is not the same as eating a lot of uh, ancestral meat. And um, so, making that translation, and this is, I think, one of the problems with the paleo diet, that they're assuming that the the options available to um, our caveman ancestors are still there. And unless you're willing to hunt your food, uh, they're not. You say wild meat, but isn't the profile of, say, a truly grazed animal more similar to yes. what would have been? And that's the closest. If you, can, if you can eat pastured animal protein, you're getting a lot closer. Um, but you're also, you know, these animals still have more fat than uh, wild animals. Um, they've been bred to. And... Uh, uh, so it's, you know, wild meat was also much leaner, I think, than our meat was. So, so, you know, we have so much good epidemiology arguing for a, a plant-based diet. And we know that people who eat uh, a pound of fruits and vegetables a day have, for example, half the rates of cancer as people who don't. Now, there may be some confounding factors there, but that's interesting. We also know that people who eat a lot of red meat have higher rates of cancer. So, um, you know, this is not perfect nutritional information by any means, but it's probably better than speculating on um, the health of our of people um, tens of thousands of years ago. So, you know, some of those folks in the eat cooked meat camp have also been coming out against bread. Uh, your chapter sings praises of bread, which I also love. And I love this image about how someone perhaps in ancient Egypt about 6,000 years ago might have left a mash of grain and water out and noticed it starting to bubble and that it created this magical new delicious substance. But it's not just delicious, right? It, you know, the microbes actually unlock some of the nutrition um, yeah. in, in the grains. And, and one of the, the most striking um, interviews I remember doing was with a uh, food scientist at Davis who said, trying to explain to me why bread was such uh, so much more nutritious than um, than the seeds from which it was made, said, you know, if I gave you a bag of flour and water, uh, you could not live very long on that. Um, but, if I, but if you turn that same flour and water into bread, uh, you could live indefinitely. Um, and that was very striking to me. And, and what he was getting at is that the process of making bread transforms those seeds uh, into really much more nutritious food than they were. Uh, and this happens in two ways. Uh, the first is during the fermentation, right? I mean, traditionally, breads were made with a sourdough culture. And what happens with that is the microbes and bacteria in those cultures release enzymes um, that tend to break down, uh, once again, those long chains of, of carbohydrate and protein in, in the seeds um, and make them much more accessible. Because essentially what the... Um, what the, the, the microbes want to do is eat those seeds. And the way you begin to eat, digest something like that is you, you, re, you create enzymes that kind of cleave these big molecules into little molecules that are much more digestible. So you start that process when you're fermenting your, uh, your dough. And then when you cook it, this amazing thing happens, which is 
you know, if you could make a porridge too, and um, uh, but it would never get hotter than the boiling point. Um, whereas if you cook a bread, the, the crust of the bread forms a kind of pressure cooker. Uh, and inside, those little air pockets that have been created by the yeasts steam up. And steam can get dramatically hotter than, um, uh, than boiling, well, well above the boiling point. So what's happening in the interior of, of a loaf of bread is the temperature is getting up to, you know, three, four, maybe 500 degrees. And that has the effect of thoroughly cooking the starches and gelatinizing them and breaking them down into sugars and um, making them much easier to digest. So um, bread and porridge, I mean, those are the two foods you could, you could compare. Bread is dramatically more nutritious than porridge. This is leaving aside all the issues people have with gluten, which I think are somewhat um, overplayed in our time. I agree that these gluten questions are kind of overblown, but folks in the bread is bad camp do have a bit of a leg to stand on based on you know, what you were writing about, which is that most of the commercial breads today are vastly different from the bread you described just now. That's right. And we, we took this brilliant technology and we kind of screwed it up. Um, we got, you know, the, the, the industry became most concerned not with making a nutritious product, but with making bread as fast and cheaply as they could. So they replaced those sourdough cultures with um, fast acting yeast, which is kind of a monoculture of one microbe that essentially is very good at, at coughing up a lot of gas in a dough, but doesn't perform all these other transformations that I was describing. And indeed, there's some evidence that even people with celiac disease, which is kind of the extreme allergy to, to gluten that um, you know, goes well beyond gluten intolerance, um, that there is Italian uh, research suggesting that um, those people, if they're eating bread that has been properly fermented, which is to say, you know, like a long 20-hour sourdough fermentation, they can uh, tolerate that bread. And the reason um, is that there are certain peptides on the gluten that cause the reaction. And these peptides are broken down in a good long fermentation. And, um, and I know, you know, I know bakers who, who say that people, who, you know, that if they have a nice uh, long fermented bread, that even gluten intolerant people can tolerate it. So that is part of it. I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on with gluten intolerance. There is more of it than there was. We know this because we've compared serum blood that's been preserved for 50 years or so. And, and the, uh, the immune reaction to gluten has, has doubled uh, when you look at modern blood and compare it to that. So something has gone on. Um, it could be that we're being exposed to too much gluten. It could be that the gluten has changed in some way because of modern breeding, um, although I found no evidence of that. Or it could be that our gut is... Um, is the problem and that we've changed. It isn't the bread or the, uh, or the wheat that's changed, but we've changed and that our um, microbiome, the, the population of microbes that live in our gut is, uh, has changed in modern times and is disordered in some ways. And many, many people suffer from uh, what is called leaky gut syndrome, um, which is when your microbiome is not happy, you, um, essentially leak big proteins out of your out of your gut into your bloodstream that that could include gluten so that that the um the health of the epithelium which is the the wall of the gut is impaired because of modern diets and modern lifestyles and that may be at the root of a great many of the allergies we see um because gluten intolerance is part and parcel of a of an increase in autoimmune conditions and allergies of all kinds i mean peanut allergies you know are 
historically in, in these kind of numbers, this is very new. So we have our bodies may be doing a, a less good job of distinguishing friend from foe than they once did. And that may have to do with um, our relationship to bacteria. So there's a lot behind it, but the growth in the market for gluten-free products far exceeds any biological change. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's of an order of magnitude in, you know, 10 years and, and biology doesn't change that fast. You know, you were just talking about the microbiome and how that might have changed. And um, I enjoyed your story in the New York Times Magazine about the microbiome. And I particularly loved the whole kind of last section of your book on microbes and fermentation. You have sauerkraut and pickles and kimchi and cheese and yogurt and all of this. And so do these microbes need to play a bigger role in our diets? Are we not getting enough microbes? Are we not eating enough pickles and kimchi and miso, et cetera? Well, I can't say for sure, but yeah, probably. Um, we used to eat a lot more. You know, all cultures had some sort of fermented foods that they relied on, um, in large part because before modern refrigeration, that was a key way to save food, is you pickled it. Uh, you buried it in the ground. You, you um, basically, when you ferment food, you're, uh, you're allowing the lactic acid bacteria to produce lactic acid, and this acid becomes a preservative. But it also does other things that are very helpful to to the food, and um, uh, and we need, you know, we we we're learning that we need these these microbes in our gut, and fermented food feeds them. There's not a direct relationship between eating bacteria and introducing, you know, permanent residents of your gut, um, but the bacteria in the diet does affect what's happening. But more like visitors than permanent residents. Um, there are some exceptions. Some bacteria do take up residence and seem to last. But I think the benefits are, are, are probably going to turn out to be more subtle than that. For one thing, the fermented foods have uh, themselves lots of compounds in them that feed the gut bugs that are already there. Um, they love fermented food. Uh, they love the um, – I mean, if you th take something like kimchi, it's got lots of um, organic acids, which are what lots of gut bacteria love to eat. And they also have lots of fiber, uh, and that's their main. That's their really their main food source is eating polysaccharides, various plant fibers, and um, and and we're definitely not getting enough of those in our gut. So, I think the way to think about it is not that we need to ingest more bacteria, although that's probably a good thing, especially in the young, um, but that we need to feed the bugs we have, and you have a, a pretty good range of different species. Probably, but their relative numbers can be adjusted very quickly by switching from, say, a high meat to a uh, plant diet. There was a recent study that found within days you could you could remake the composition of species in your gut by giving them what the healthy ones want to eat. Um, and basically, we know what that is. They really like fiber. They like whole grains. And so eating the bacteria is a good thing, too. I think in general, it may be exposing yourself to bacteria. Uh, especially at a young age, that seems to you know educate the immune system in a in a you know in a way. But it isn't clear as you're an adult how much of that is is going on. Um, but in general, you know, we've worked very hard to rid our lives of bacteria in our food, which we try to sanitize as much as we can, uh, and in our environment. Um, and that um, you know, an exposure to more bacteria, more different kinds of bacteria, is probably very important for our health. You know, leaving aside the fact that some of them are pathogens that can kill you. Um, but the great majority of them are either benign or helpful. And we have 
we haven't really acted on that premise for now many, many decades. Uh, and I grew up in a household where, you know, bacteria was the enemy and we didn't eat, you know, with the, ex the weird sole exception of yogurt. That's really the only live culture food most people eat. Um, but that doesn't have everything that, that say fermented vegetables have. Um, so ever since I, you know, I do make a point of eating a little bit of some fermented condiment or kimchi or sauerkraut, uh, as often as I can. And I make it also, it's really easy to make. And that's another thing people don't realize. So, you know, bacteria and uh, microbes in general live throughout our bodies, on our bodies, inside our bodies. There are different populations in different parts of our body. And this is a little bit of a gross out question. But speaking of using microbes for food, wasn't cheese recently made from some of the microbes in your belly button? Um, <laughs> not just you. I know there were others, but you were part of that experiment. I have to say, I was in Dublin this winter and I actually saw the exhibit there. Oh, I walked did. in and there was a video and there you were. Um, so belly button cheese. Did they offer a tasting or not? They did not. It was, uh, it was inside a little container there. <laughs> it was kept away from the, the viewers. Um, yeah, well, I, it was an art project, I guess, um, but it was, con it was done by a microbiologist and she asked me if I would donate some of my microbes to, um, to, to making some cheese. And she wanted to essentially show people that, um, we're very much part of this food chain. Um, and as much as we like to think that we're not, we are. So using a swab, I retrieved some from my belly button and, uh, and she took it and, uh, inoculated some cheese with it. And one of the, the, you know, amazing things I learned when I was working on uh, cheese, which is one of the fermented foods that I learned how to make in the book, is that, um, some of the microbes that make cheese really delicious, um, the ones that you find on a washed rind cheese, which are called B linens, Brevi bacteria linens, is very, uh, closely related to, um, the Brevi bacteria that live between your toes and elsewhere on your body. So that might explain why so many people, uh, use as metaphors when they're describing a stinky cheese, you know, the, the, the bodily um, smells. And uh, the, uh, the French call a good stinky cheese um, the pied de deux, the, the feet of God, which is a really weird locution because they're basically saying, smells like stinky feet of a particularly exalted kind. <laughs> <laughs> tastes like God. <laughs> yeah. And now, now we were talking earlier about the elusiveness of food and there is an illusion, right? A metaphor, but it turns out to perhaps be more literal than we realized. If indeed this is the smell of the byproducts of a certain bacteria that we're very familiar with. So, um, uh, cheese is, uh, you know, gets us into this very uncomfortable place. You know, it's not too far away from cannibalism. Um, and many people avoid those kind of cheeses, those really fragrant washed rind cheeses. And other people love them and they gravitate toward them. They're right on this edge of disgust, and um, which is an interesting place for food to linger. But of course, many cultures have foods that are arguably disgusting. Rotten whale meat or, you know, those types of things. Yeah. And I, I ended up eating a lot of it in the course of researching this book. I was in uh, Iceland where I was offered a delicacy so-called uh, that they call hakarl. Uh, which is shark meat that has been buried for a minimum of six weeks. And it turns into this cheesy textured white thing with this ammonia stink. That's, it's, it's really pretty gross. Um, 
And they purport to love it, although I couldn't help but notice that after every bite of Hakarl, they took a, a shot of schnapps. So it's, it's not <laughs> as it if down, they huh? wanted the, the taste to linger on their tongue. Your whole book is almost a love letter to the history, science, and importance of cooking. But that kind of begs one important question, how to convince people to cook more. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're cooking less and less and outsourcing our cooking more and more. We're really busy. Uh, we're intimidated by cooking. And we have an industry that's working very hard to persuade us. We don't know how to do it and we can't do it as well as it can. My way to approach it is we should encourage people to do it by showing them how interesting it is. Uh, it really is a, an intellectually and sensually um, exciting way to spend your time. And I think part of the problem with cooking has been isolated. We've been isolated in our doing it for too long. I mean, usually people cook alone, and it's usually been women and a family. Um, and I found to the extent you can make cooking itself, not just eating, a social experience, it becomes a whole lot more fun. So I really think the challenge is to get both uh, partners in a relationship into the kitchen and get kids into the kitchen. And that changes the whole dynamic. And it actually becomes a much more satisfying um, way to spend time. Um, so I think we have to lead with pleasure, um, not with, you know, hectoring people or lecturing them that this is good for you. It happens to be very good for you. People who eat a cooked, uh, you know, a human cooked diet are much healthier than people who don't. Uh, but it's also one of the most interesting things humans know how to do and have done for a very long time. And we kind of get that or we wouldn't be watching so much cooking on TV. Um, there is something fascinating about it. But it's even more fascinating when you do it yourself. I agree with that. I love to cook. So with that note, I want to take a little turn and talk briefly to you about an article that you just published in The New Yorker about the intelligence of plants, which I found fascinating. It seemed to me to be kind of a continuation of an early book of yours, Botany of Desire, in which you basically put forth the idea that plants are kind of making us do what they want us to do. And this is about plant intelligence. Now, obviously, Plant behavior and plant intelligence would be dramatically different from animals since they're stuck in one place. But you write that they have an amazing amount of senses. So could you kind of describe that? What are some of those? Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, this is in a way a, a follow-on to the work I was doing in Botany of Desire, although there I was looking at genotype intelligence. In other words, the kind of ingenuity that evolution equips a species with. And this is more phenotype. I mean, the individual's intelligence in, in dealing with uh, environmental challenges in that generation. Um, and I did not realize just how much interesting research has been, has gone on in the last couple decades, demonstrating that plants, first of all, do have behaviors, uh, which is a word we don't assume, you know, goes with plants uh, because we, we associate behavior with movement and their behaviors are, are rather slow and hard to pick up on unless they're, you know, a Venus flytrap or a mimosa plant. Um, but that, because they are rooted in place, they need a whole different set of strategies to deal with the fact they have to get everything they need without moving around and they have to defend themselves without being able to pick up and go. And so what does that call for? Well, it calls for incredible um, sensory sophistication. And plants indeed do have somewhere between 15 and 20 distinct senses. Uh, including our big five, by the way. They have the sense of smell and taste, and we've just learned sound. Um, if uh, one researcher I interviewed for this piece uh, played a recording of caterpillars chomping on leaves and played this recording for, for, for plants that weren't being chomped on by caterpillars, and they um, were provoked by that sound to prepare a chemical defense. Uh, 
Uh, and that's essentially how plants defend themselves. They, uh, they, they basically begin to produce chemicals that either uh, poison or taste bad to their predators um, or make it, make it very hard to digest them. But they also can sense various chemicals in the soil, um, distinct chemicals. They can sense salt. They can sense volume and hardness and, um, uh, you know, this whole list of different things and touch, obviously. I mean, if they, you know, they can, they know when they've touched a pole and want to start climbing up it or that they need to move. Or even to move towards a pole you wrote about. Well, yeah, there's that too. They have uh, one of the most striking things that I, I, I saw was a, a time-lapse video, which is posted on the New Yorker website with the article. Uh, I was talking to Stefano Mancuso, who's one of the leaders in this school of so-called plant neurobiology. Uh, and I said at some point, you know, you, you're talking about these plants as if they have intention and consciousness, and uh, um, which struck me as odd. And he said, well, let me show you something. You tell me if they have intention and consciousness. So he swiveled around his computer monitor and, and uh, clicked open this video. And in the video, you watch uh, a, a bean plant, uh, one frame every 10 minutes over the course of two days, looking, and I'm, I have scare quotes around the, the looking, for a pole. And there's a pole about 18 inches away from the bean plant. And what's really peculiar about this is I kind of assumed, I mean, the same thing happens in my garden every summer, that the bean just kind of does this rotation in space until it bumps into something to, to, uh, to climb up. But in this video, the bean looks nowhere except at this pole. And it somehow knows where in space that pole is and that that pole is suitable for climbing. We don't know how. And it throws itself over and over again in this incredibly like striving and anxious way. And its leaves are clenched and it's like casting itself like a fly rod until it finally makes contact with the pole. And after it has wound one revolution around, it just relaxes and the leaves kind of flutter happily. So the question is, how did it know where it was? Um, and there's no shadow to tell it. Um, it's not lit that way. And the theory, and it's just a theory, is that plants perform a kind of echolocation. So that we know they make noise. We can't hear it. But as their cells elongate, they make a clicking sound. And it may be possible. We also know that they can hear so it may be that they can catch the reflection of those sounds coming off of a pole and know that there's something there to grab onto. Uh, or there may be some other basis for the tropism that we don't understand yet. But the point is, they have incredible sensory acuteness, and, uh, and they need it. And they also have, you know, brilliant defenses. And they also, and this was also um, amazing to me, they have kin recognition. So in other words, they won't compete with their relatives the way they would compete with stranger plants, even in the same species. Um, and they did this by putting two um, Great Lakes sea rocket plants in the same pot. And when the two were closely related, either offspring or cousins or whatever, um, their roots would share the earth uh, in the pot um, and they wouldn't compete for um, uh, you know, dominance of the root space. Whereas if they weren't related, they would compete. Uh, so there's evidence of kin recognition. And then the other, the other thing that I found really amazing um, was the fact that it turns out that trees in a forest uh, are linked together by a microbial web of uh, fungi. Mycelium link many of the trees. We don't know how many, but in this one experimental plot in British Columbia, uh, all the fir trees were, were connected. And they use that um, 
linkage to send signals to one another and to send food to one another. And they will send more food to their offspring. They can actually, a mother tree or a father tree can feed a baby tree before it gets tall enough to capture a lot of sunlight. Um, so there is a what the researchers call the wood wide web uh, underground. And um, it, uh, it allows, and it creates a kind of economy where, where, where trees are sharing resources and information over these linkages. Um, so that's pretty smart too, I thought. Uh, so it's a, it's, you know, it's a kind of brave new world of science and there's a lot of contention as to, is this intelligence or is it something else? Uh, can plants learn is a very active question being explored. Can they remember? Uh, what is memory? And, uh, uh, and it, it, it reflects these questions back to us um, about how our brains work. Because plants don't have brains. And even though these scientists speak about plant neurobiology, nobody's saying they have neurons. But what's interesting is, how could you do all these things without neurons? Well, there just may be other ways to, um, to generate intelligent behavior. Uh, networks of other kinds of excitable cells uh, may be enough to do it. One of the things I'd like to come at the end of your article where you talk about how one of the best ways to explore other planets would actually be by designing robots that are based on plants and not animals. So how would that work, these idea of plant bots? Well, Stefano Mancuso, who's doing some of this work, he's the, the Florentine uh, plant scientist, plant physiologist, points out that we always model our robots on ourselves or on other animals or maybe on insects. And, uh, and that gives us a limited kind of experience of the environments we send them into. But what about modeling them on plants, plantoids? Um, these would be really great for exploring other planets um, because what they would be really good at is sending their roots deeper into the soil and moving them to find things. And that's what plants do. And it is the tips of their roots where much of their so-called intelligence appears to reside. So they're actually working in Europe on plantoids and they're using special plastics that can elongate and then harden and send sensory signals back or send to one another in this networked relation. So his dream is to send large numbers of little plantoids to uh, uh, and explode them like a seed pod over the surface of Mars or some other planet and let them all dig down into the, uh, into the ground and, and transmit signals to one another and then back to the mothership. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a kind of wonderful dream, but he's, his, his point, his larger point is that, you know, we're, we model so much on ourselves, on the structures of animal bodies, which all have brains, you know, almost all have brains and, and have, this, have this centrality and this, this command post. And he's suggesting, you know, for certain jobs, that might not be the best, best way to get things done. And that plants may offer us alternative ways of organizing and processing information that we should explore. And I think that that's a, that's a powerful idea, and it's very much the product of network thinking of all kinds. I think it really grows out of computer science, science of swarms, the science of networks. Um, but it does suggest a whole new direction in, um, uh, in information science, which I think is very exciting. It certainly is. So I enjoyed very much reading your book and all of your recent articles. And I'll say one more time, thank you again for coming to join us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Cynthia. Cynthia, what stands out to me most about this interview is that diet and nutrition are so complicated and confusing to people. They're just like looking at the package and like, what is this gobbledygook? And on the food that I'm about to eat. And Pollen just, he does cut through 
that complexity with a lot of grace. And just listening to him, I guess I can see why so many people are devotees. It's true. You know, he he makes things so clear and straightforward. And he also is such a good storyteller. I mean, this wasn't really as much part of the discussion because I kind of wanted to focus on the science. But in his books, he really brings himself in as this journeyer and this storyteller. And they're really his books are really captivating. And he seems to have insights, too, that maybe most readers who just read the science wouldn't have gathered. So, for example, one thing that I really liked about the beginning of the interview is that he talks about how I always presumed that the changes that we make in the agricultural industry were really driven by producing the raw materials of food. But he really talks about it as it's the way that we cook that drives the changes in the agricultural industry, which is a fascinating way of looking at it. It is. I, I thought that was interesting, too. And I mean, I think his main point is is the fact that we've stopped cooking and how that's driving these changes, that the agricultural industry is just trying to make these very uniform, you know, the types of food that industry needs. Everything has to be exactly the same. Everything has to be, you know, basically kind of bland and boring and transportable and similar. And that's kind of what we've ended up with. And then quite the opposite of bland and boring, of course, is his, his uh, writing about how plants have senses and, and even alluding to consciousness. I mean, that, that really blew me away, thinking about these bean plants that can sense where the pole is um, and sort of reach out for it. It's a completely new way of thinking about plant life. I thought you'd like that, especially as a neuroscientist. Yeah, I found that just amazing. And even this idea that the word neurobiology is obviously really controversial since plants don't have neurons, but they do have some sort of consciousness. They're sensing their environment and they're responding to it. There's a potential for reference to a bad M. Night Shyamalan movie here, but I will, uh, where the plants get revenge against the people. But I, but I, 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 will, I will avoid that. Um, I, and I will just say that I was struck by it too. And especially this idea that plants know their kin, right? Because of course, we know that kin selection uh, occurs and there's greater altruism uh, among uh, animals towards those to whom they are more genetically related. And that makes, of course, perfect sense. But uh, why wouldn't plants have that, too? And this hint that they do is really intriguing. And, of mm-hmm. course, the classic science fiction book, The Chrysalids, comes to mind. That's really scary. Oh, you just nerded <laughs> out on me. I don't know that Oh, one. sorry. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> oh, boy. You'll have to read it. It's about plants taking over the world. So I think that's it for another episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And I want to especially thank... Cynthia for being here with us and for contributing such a great interview. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It made my maternity leave that much easier. Well, I am happy to help. It was great fun. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And please remember, this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com and they are offering you a free audiobook. So to get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I am your guest host, Cynthia Graber. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.